Well, greetings again and welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church as we make our way through a sermon series that is called Life in the Body. And what we're trying to do is look at very clear pictures in the Bible that tell us what exactly it is like living uh, as Christians in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you're looking for that passage, little theologians, I want you to think about something. I almost snapped my fingers in the microphone. I'm not sure what that would do. That might actually cause technical difficulties. But I do want you, little theologians, to think about uh, a snap. Uh, That might be one of the ways that your parents uh, get your attention. They snap at you. For me, my dad would whistle very loudly, but I was outside, and uh, he didn't have to know where I was. He'd just whistle, and I would hear that whistle. That would get my attention. But it could be uh, clapping your hands or um, uh, saying your name abruptly or saying your name uh, with your middle name. Uh, I heard that as well. That usually didn't uh, mean something good was about to happen. But think about any way that your parents use to get your attention, to jar you away from some kind of distraction. Can you draw that at all? I don't, I don't know if that's possible, but uh, give it a try. How do your parents get your attention? This is a passage in which uh, Paul is getting the attention of Christians living in the city of Corinth. But it's a passage in which God gets our attention. He says something that's very striking And we're supposed to pay close attention. In fact, we're supposed to actually obey. I can only imagine what would happen if I was out playing and I heard this whistle and I just thought to myself, what a lovely whistle, and then just went about playing. That wouldn't be good. The whistle, the thing that gets our attention, is meant to be obeyed. And there's something that gets our attention in this passage. The passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at the passage. Our Father, we know that you speak to us. Would you forgive us for thinking that you don't? When we have a hard time hearing you, Father, would we not blame you, but we blame ourselves? We're not listening. We are dull of heart. We ourselves are full of distractions. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you snap our hearts to attention such that we hear your word this morning? Thank you, Father, for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage, as I said, is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Begin at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of our Lord. Well, let me begin by stating the theme of this passage. 
This passage is telling us that Christians are commanded by God to actually scrutinize all of their relationships, but Christians are commanded by God to scrutinize especially relationships that we have with unbelievers. Now, there was a very real sense as I was putting together the sermon series where uh, this particular theme, the theme of of a believer being separated from unbelievers, that this theme itself didn't quite seem to fit the other themes in the sermon series. And so, for instance, we're talking about such wonderful beauties of living in the church body, fellowship, uh, the fact that the church body uh, is uh, personal, is intimate, that there's uh, encouragement in the church body, uh, beauty in the church body, the church body lasts forever, and uh, so on and so forth. But this theme, that Christians are commanded by God to scrutinize relationships with unbelievers, well, it feels, well, it feels a little harsh, Well, it's actually a beautiful theme and very important to understanding what it means to be in the body of the church. In the New Testament, in the Greek, and in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the words that are used to describe the church almost always presume that to be a part of the church is to not be a part of another body. And that actually is part of the beauty of the church. But I do want to acknowledge here at the beginning of the sermon that if you're listening this morning and you're not a believer, you might hear this command, the command to scrutinize relationships that Christians have with unbelievers. You might hear this command as a point of Christian arrogance. And you might be saying to yourself, I always suspected that Christians had this kind of arrogance. And that may very well be your suspicion These Christians never loved me as they love others, and I feel it, and I've always suspected that arrogance. And if you're listening and you are uh, a believer, well, you may actually know very well that your unbelieving friends suspect the very thing. Well, my unbelieving friends, if if they knew that the Bible commanded me to scrutinize my relationship with all unbelievers, well, they would, they would uh, receive that as arrogance. And if you're here as a Christian, you might be very sensitive to that. I don't want to be perceived by my unbelieving friends and unbelieving family members as arrogant. I don't like that. But here it is uh, in the Bible that we're to scrutinize relationships that we have with unbelievers. Also, if you're a Christian, you might ask this question, if this is true, how is anyone ever going to become a believer? If I'm to scrutinize all of my relationships with unbelievers, well, how is someone going to become a believer? How am I going to get close enough to them that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it's important for me that you would just understand that I'm aware of those offenses, and I hold some of those offenses as well. This is difficult to understand, but it's uh, clear in, in uh, Scripture. And, and that's been the goal of this series, Life in the Body, is to look at clear expressions in the Bible of what it is that is unique and special about the church body. And this is a very clear passage. Now, to be sure, in this passage, there are several Greek words that Paul uses that, that don't occur anywhere else in Scripture. But, but even though that's the case, this actually is a pretty, a pretty clear passage, and I hope you discern that as we make our way through it. I, I think there's two critical questions. Uh, we want to give Paul the benefit of the doubt just for a moment, and we want to ask, well, what exactly does Paul mean? What does Paul mean? 
I think that's a question that we need to, uh, we need to attack. But another question is this. Uh, if this is what Paul means, whatever that is, how does Paul expect the Corinthian believers to apply that? And how does the Bible, how does God expect us as Christians today to apply what Paul means? Well, you may not know it, but there I've just given you the outline of the sermon. Uh, what does Paul mean? And then how are we to apply what Paul means? Uh, before we dive into uh, what does Paul mean, let me just say uh, very quickly uh, that this church, this church in Corinth, was actually a very uh, dicey church. It was uh, a church that if, if you looked at the church planting team, uh, which included uh, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy, uh, you would think that this is a fantastic church planting team, uh, one, of the, one of the best in the history of the world. It was uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla, a couple that, uh, that they had met there there in uh, Corinth. Uh, but there was a Roman citizen who was a part of the church named Titius Eustace, and there was a, uh, an influential Jew who was a part of the church named uh, Crispus. And Paul, in fact, it would seem, found such favorable conditions for church planting that he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Well, that's unusual for someone like Paul, who is an itinerant church planter. But even though that team of church planters seems to be uh, such an exquisite team that nothing could go wrong, the Corinth, uh, Corinthian church actually had a lot of problems. In fact, their first four years were rocky indeed. Uh, they were arguing all of the time. And, and in fact, there were many, uh, many occasions where Paul is not only writing letters to the Corinthians. We have in our Bible two letters. He probably wrote four. Not only is he writing letters, but the Corinthian church is sending delegates of people to consult with him. And, and Paul is reaching out to uh, mature believers and asking them to uh, go and minister to this hurting, struggling church. In fact, there's an instance in which Paul asked Apollos to go, but it wasn't the will of Apollos to go. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but maybe it was just such a difficult church, Apollos didn't want to go. And then Paul sends Timothy, uh, Paul sends uh, Titus. Uh, it really was a church that struggled its first four years. Uh, Corinth is a city, and this might shed a bit of light, uh, Corinth as a city was actually uh, a a pretty challenging place to plant a church. It was the hub of trade, north and south, and, and, and east and west. And uh, so uh, there was uh, always traffic in Corinth, which made Corinth a very, very prosperous city. In fact, the city was uh, so immensely prosperous that the central marketplace of Corinth was actually larger than the Roman Forum. But as well as being prosperous, Corinth was a city that was known worldwide for its immorality. In fact, hundreds of years earlier, uh, the playwright Aristophanes uh, actually coined a couple of words to describe someone who is uh, not just immoral, but particularly a sexually immoral as someone who is a Corinthian. And, and when that was said, everyone would know, oh, he's a Corinthian. Oh, he's a Corinthian. It may have to do that uh, there was a temple in Corinth, a, a temple uh, to Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love and beauty. And this temple, uh, in particular here in Corinth, actually had more than a thousand sacred prostitutes serving at that temple. And what happened in Corinth uh, was that the sex trade uh, actually found a headquarters in Corinth uh, such that this trade uh, sold prostitutes all across the empire. This is the kind of city that this wonderful church planting team of Paul and so many others was planted in. 
Well, the city uh, and the church actually had several problems, but keep that in the back of your mind as we begin with the question, uh, if, uh, if, if Paul says that Christians are commanded by God to scrutinize relationships with unbelievers, what does he mean? Well, look carefully at the passage. And notice that right in the middle, in, in uh, verse 16, well, in fact, in the middle of verse 16, there's a break. So when we ask the question, what does Paul mean, uh, I want to show you something here. Uh, I think the first thing that Paul uh, means, there's, there's two statements here. The, the first statement that helps us understand what Paul means is this, that God actively initiates a relationship with believers. God actively initiates a relationship with believers. And I can show that to you uh, in the middle of our passage. You know, this uh, picture of God actively initiating a relationship with uh, Christian people, uh, this is what's behind that word uh, covenant, the word that is in the title of our church. A covenant is a promise that includes mutual obligations to keep that promise alive and going. And so, for instance, God uh, initiates a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, of course, we know that Adam, he broke that covenant through his own disobedience. And then God initiates another covenant. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that it is a better covenant. And this is a covenant of grace, a covenant that's made with the second Adam, uh, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And Jesus, he keeps God's covenant. And he keeps God's covenant for our, our salvation. That's how salvation happens. Uh, Jesus is that perfect covenant keeper on behalf of his church. And so God actively initiates a relationship with believers, and that's what Paul wants us to understand. And notice how negative this passage begins. Look at verse 14. Do not, do not be unequally yoked. Paul's application, which we'll look at at the very, very end, Paul's application is negative. The Corinthian believers are told deliberately, specifically, not to do something. And he's saying not to uh, initiate or engage in a particular kind of activity. He says uh, not to be unequally yoked. And just to show how serious God is about believers not doing something, uh, Paul goes on to propose five rhetorical questions. And all of these rhetorical questions, as you look between 14 and 16, all of them require a negative response. And we'll look at these closer later, but notice in verse 14, uh, Paul says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The answer is clearly uh, none, no partnership, nothing at all. And he goes on, uh, light and darkness, Christ and Belial, which is a nickname for Satan. Unbeliever is, in verse 15, uh, is literally the same word as believer with a negative prefix attached to it. And then uh, he uh, goes on, uh, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer to all of these rhetorical questions you know and I know is none. And so it starts negatively, and Paul actually emphasizes the negativity with all of these questions. Now, before any of the Corinthian Christians could actually become offended at all of this negativity at the beginning of the passage... And maybe even before uh, you could uh, be offended at the negativity. Look what happens then at verse 16. He starts by saying, don't do something. All kinds of evidence for that. 
And in the middle of verse 16, Paul gathers together a loose collection of quotes, uh, uh, perhaps from his uh, rich memory of uh, biblical text, or perhaps from rabbinic sayings that would have been known at the time. It's very difficult to peg this uh, quote. Several passages are highlighted here. But in the middle of verse 16, he gathers together a loose collection of quotes. And clearly his point is this. You are being told not to do something. But let me remind you, believers in Corinth, and you, uh, believers here, all of the wonderful covenantal activities of God. You see, the beginning of the passage is, don't do this. And then what does Paul do? He goes on to list all of the things that God does do, such that human activity is stopped and God's activity is emphasized and highlighted almost as if uh, he snapped his fingers he's held up a stop sign he says stop with that so that you might see this verse 16 I will make my dwelling among them literally I will dwell in their midst also in verse 16 I will walk in their midst I will walk among them I will be their God and skip down to verse 17. I will welcome you. I will receive you into my presence. And then in verse 18, I will be a father to you. How interesting, don't you think, that Paul would emphasize five times the not doing of something. And even before we could actually gin up the, the uh, offense at that, how dare you say that to me, uh, he gives us these wonderful pictures of God's activity. He limits human activity, and he magnifies God's activity. And I suspect those two things are actually connected. You see, Paul is showing the believers God's initiative of an intimate relationship with them. Now, there's a sense in which we do this all the time. All of us have been in arguments with people who are actually very valuable to us. We uh, may uh, get into an argument uh, with a child who uh, we're telling a child not to do something when what they really want is to do something. And uh, they must comply with our wishes, but at the same time we say to them, I love you. We, we remind them, this is hard for you to hear. And you don't like me right now, perhaps, but I love you. Now, how often have we had uh, uh, disagreements with a close friend or with a spouse and part of the beginning of the resolution to that disagreement is to say, I love you. Yes, this is, this is an awful experience that we're going through right now, but, but I love you. And Paul says that we're not to do something, but he at the same time reminds us that God has done something. He's actively initiated a relationship with us. Well, that puts things into perspective. In fact, a Christian would know that uh, all of these, uh, these five actions of God are actually expressions of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God actually dwells in Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, all of the actions listed here, they actually remind a believer of what they've received in Jesus. God dwells with us through Jesus, both through his taking upon himself our nature but also he dwells with us in his ascended reign over the church. And he dwells with us in the spirit of Christ that dwells in every believer. And God walks in our midst through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is always near to us. 
And God welcomes us. He receives us with his invitation of the gospel through the word that's preached. And he becomes a father to us. Why? Because of the perfect work of Jesus, who with his blood redeems us that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And so when Paul says then in the middle of our passage in verse 16 that we are the temple of the living God, I think the emphasis in verse 16 is the word living. We are the temple of the living God. He is with us, close to us. And this is all from his action, his initiative. And it actually puts into context the beginning of the verse that says, do not do something. So uh, first, when we think about what Paul means, we have to understand that uh, Paul believes that God actively initiates a relationship with believers. God actively initiates a relationship with believers. But there's one other thing that we need to be aware of if we're to discern what Paul means. Paul is also saying this, all of my relationships as a believer that I have with unbelievers, well, they must be limited. It's inevitable they have to be limited. All of my relationships with unbelievers must be limited. Let me restate these again. These are the two statements that we need to be aware of to discern what Paul means. God actively initiates a relationship with believers, and that's related to this. All of my relationships as a believer that I have with unbelievers, well, must be limited. And so we need to now go back up to the top of the passage and consider those negative commands. But the anchor is verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now to be yoked may refer to subjection or slavery. A captured prisoners of war uh, would be yoked together as they're uh, led away. And this is very often the image in the Old Testament when we find the Hebrew word for being yoked. Oftentimes, it refers to slavery of some sort. In Galatians 5, Paul does the same thing. To be yoked is to be a slave, a slave to the law or slave to sin. But here, Paul is using the other imagery of being yoked. Not being yoked in terms of submission, but being yoked in terms of a pattern or partnership. In Judaism, this is an image of wisdom and discipleship. Uh, To be yoked is to actually have a guide or a pattern in life. You are yoked to the law. You are yoked to wisdom that you might know how to live your life. And this is what Jesus means in Matthew 11 when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And what does he say then? Learn from me, referring to living a life as a disciple, patterning one's life on the pattern of Jesus' humility in particular. He says that he's gentle and lowly in heart. So to be yoked to an unbeliever would be to attach yourself to him or her in such a way that the two of you are working together for the same purpose. You're uh, working together that you might uh, plow a furrow straight. God told the people of Israel not to yoke a donkey and an ox together. This may be what he means in Deuteronomy 22. So even if a believer is yoked to an unbeliever, uh, that believer may sometimes make a straight furrow. But to be permanently linked to an unbeliever, to deliberately affix yourself to an unbeliever, well, it's absolutely forbidden by God. Because of God's covenantal activity of initiating a relationship with you, all of your relationships with unbelievers, they have to be the unyoked kind of relationship. Now, this very same thought is emphasized in the five rhetorical questions very quickly. Uh, Paul says in verse 14, we're not to engage in partnerships with unbelievers. Now, that word for partnership 
uh, and there's going to be several here, uh, occurs only here in the New Testament. While we might have companions or colleagues or partners, the disciples are said to have uh, colleagues, uh, fellow fishermen, those are their partners. While we may have companions, uh, we must not have a tight kind of companionship. We can have partners, but we can't have partnerships. It may be in verse 14 that Paul's referring to an official kind of closeness, but let's move on. He says we're not to engage uh, in fellowship with unbelievers. This is a very common word. Uh, Pastor Hill mentioned this last week. Uh, Fellowship is a word that refers to intimate sharing between believers and intimate participation that believers have with one another because they have a participation with Jesus Christ, their Savior. Well, that kind of fellowship is intimate in the church community, but you can't have that kind of relationship with an unbeliever. He says in verse 15, to not have accord with with, uh, unbelievers. Uh, This word uh, is uh, rare not only in the Bible, it's rare in classical literature, but it's related to a word that's not so rare, the word from which we get symphony. And Paul seems to be saying we can work with others, but the harmony that we have in working with non-believers is never going to be truly symphonic in a way that our relationships with believers will be. He says also in verse 15, not to share a portion with an unbeliever. This is a common word, but it may refer to the occupation of a similar space, a membership. When portion is used, it often refers to being a part of a neighborhood or a district or a province. And so we're not to have that kind of shared space with an unbeliever. I confess, I'm not sure exactly what he means there. But again, I think we have all of these examples that we would see it has something to do with a degree of closeness. And then finally in verse 16, we're not to have an agreement with an unbeliever. And the word that Paul uses here refers to a kind of contract that is written among a couple of people uh, agreed upon and then together they sign it. Well, each of these illustrations are probably not intended to be followed uh, rigidly. But each of them do have something in common. And that thing in common is something that uh, limits the kind of relationship that might otherwise flourish with a person. So if you, for instance, were to uh, adopt exactly as your unbelieving friend or family member uh, everything that they adopt, well, then that relationship could truly flourish. And Paul is saying that relationship ought not to flourish in that way. It's always going to have a ceiling. I see that these are perhaps less commands than they are really uh, uh, graphical pictures of the kind of limitations that we ought to expect in relationships with unbelievers. We have, after all, been called out from the world. Now, if you really want a relationship with someone to be close, you form uh, everything that uh, this passage says you ought not form. You form an official partnership. You share an intimate fellowship. You unite in harmony. You occupy the same physical space. Again, not sure exactly what that means. You enter into an official agreement. You do all of those things for a relationship to be truly close. And Paul says that because of God's covenantal activity of initiating a relationship with you, particularly... All of your relationships then with unbelievers, they must fall short of yoking yourself to them. Well, here's what we're all wondering. How is it that I practically apply this to my own relationships today? 
And I want to share three things because you'll see that the application is right there at the beginning and the application is clearly negative. The application is a limitation. But there are three things that I want us to discern from this passage that we can uh, uh, see are confidently taught by Paul. But first of all, you need to hear this. This is part of the three. The first thing is this, is you as a believer need to hear that you are allowed to associate with unbelievers. You need to hear that as a believer, you are even allowed to associate with scandalous unbelievers. Well, how do we know that? But Paul has actually already said that to the Corinthian church. Now, that's risky business for this church. Why would you affirm something like that to a body of people who clearly struggle with their relationships of intimacy with unbelievers? That's why the command uh, against it is here. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, and the, the word there means to mix with, to commingle with, and not to associate with sexually immoral people. And all of us nod our heads, absolutely. But he goes on, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. So what Paul is saying is that you may associate with all kinds of sordid people, sexually immoral people, greedy people, swindlers, idolaters, revilers, drunkards. Did you know that that was in the Bible? Well, you should know that from Jesus, that Jesus did exactly this. He wasn't afraid to do that. More importantly, you actually, as a believer, are commanded to practice your holiness before them. The, the holiness that you practice as a Christian is to be practiced in the same way to those who are unbelievers. The sympathy for a Christian, but sympathy for unbelievers. Mercy for unbelievers. Gentleness for unbelievers. For their good to care for them, to even preach the word to them with your actions. And Jesus did this as well. And so it's very likely that you, as a Christian, will have many friends with unbelievers. It's actually very likely. It would be rather odd if, as a believer, you had no relationships uh, and you had no good relationships with unbelievers. You shouldn't be afraid of this. In fact, part of the reason for that is salt is supposed to be salty. And light is supposed to be bright. And we should expect that an unbeliever every now and again would sense that and delight in that. And notice that as an unbeliever, even though it may seem as though we're arrogant, or there might be times where they think that we're arrogant, to be an unbeliever and to love and care, or to be a believer and to love and care for an unbeliever, well, that really is salty salt and bright light. So the first thing that we need to walk away with is you actually may associate with unbelievers. The second thing is this. God says that we're not to have limitless relationships with unbelievers. The command, remember, is negative. Christians are commanded by God to scrutinize relationships with unbelievers so that these relationships will always be limited in some way. Now, I have a kind of silly illustration of that, but bear with me. 
Many of us are fans of uh, a sports team or of a college, uh, or we're fans of uh, uh, a, uh, uh, we have a, a, a fanhood of a special taste, movies or music, or maybe we're fans of a, of a celebrity or fans of a, of a city. And there are many things that you can be a fan of. But you know what I mean when I say that as a Christian, you can never be the biggest fan. You understand that, right? You can never be the biggest fan. You can never have the team colors uh, emblazoned on everything that you possibly own, including your body, and actually be the best fan on the planet for whatever that is you're a fan of. Well, you can't be the biggest fan because you're God's fan, because he's come close to you intimately and he has saved you. You can never be the biggest fan of anything or anyone but God. Well, we can all nod our heads to that, but that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that all of your relationships with unbelievers, they're, they're limited in that way. And, and you have to be able to admit that they're limited in that way. I think there's three things that stand out to me as direct applications of what Paul means here. That means that uh, intimate partnerships with uh, uh, unbelievers are, are just out of the question. And so, uh, for instance, you, you can't enter with whatever is the most uh, deeply formal relationship of the world. Whatever that deep relationship is, in everyone's estimation, you can't enter into that kind of intimate relationship. So, for instance, uh, marriage readily stands out. You are biblically commanded not to marry an unbeliever if you are a believer. But this may also include other very personal endeavors. Now, here there may be some differences, to be sure. And perhaps this means that uh, you can't go into business uh, with an unbeliever. Or perhaps this means that you can't uh, take family vacations with, uh, the, with an unbelieving family. And, and to be sure, this may be a little difficult, and this is certainly going to take wisdom. And for some times, there's going to be differences in the life of the church body. But whatever the world calls the deepest, most intimate relationships, you actually can't mirror that as a Christian. So it has to do with intimate relationships, but it also has to do with worship practices. You must not, as a believer, practice the worship habits of an unbeliever. Now, this actually was happening in Corinth. Of course, there was marriage of unbelievers in Corinth as well. But this was happening, that uh, there were people in the church of Jesus Christ who felt that uh, they could be a part of that fellowship in the church while at the same time uh, worshiping in the variety of temples available to them in Corinth. Now, this was happening likely through sexual morality, uh, practices that people would engage in uh, in the name of civic pride because this is the city of such and such god or goddess. But this may be exactly why Paul insists in verse 16 that you are now a part of a church of the living God who has not only come to you to save you, but to be with you in Christ Jesus. And so intimate partnerships are going to be limited. Your worship practices are going to be limited. You can't participate in unbelievers' worship practices. And a third one is this, is that your ordinary practices with unbelievers are actually limited. You must not participate in unholy living with an unbelieving friend. Maybe you've heard that uh, there are some uh, unholy behaviors that you can participate in on the fringe because you're reaching out to an unbeliever. And I don't think that you can show that clearly from Scripture. In fact, look how 2 Corinthians chapter 7 begins. Look what's on Paul's mind right after our own passage. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so if an action is displeasing to your God, but not to the God of your unbelieving friend, you still must desist. Even though your friend permits it, your God does not. And that will inevitably cause some kind of friction in that relationship with your unbelieving friend. For the Corinthians, this probably even included uh, those who were in the church who were participating uh, in uh, activities that were simply not godly. Uh, Paul seems to intimidate that even within the church, you need to avoid those kinds of people. They say they're believers, but they are very unholy. Well, let me offer just a little bit of advice. Um, there, there's three applications here. One, you may associate with unbelievers. Uh, but the second, there are uh, ways in which you must not associate with unbelievers. Uh, but just a, a quick advice here. We're going to have differences of opinions with regards to the kinds of relationships we can have with unbelievers in the church. And that's a healthy thing in the church, to have those differences. Uh, we, as Christians, we need to seek the counsel of other Christians. This is part of Christian friendship. We reach out to our other friends and we ask them, this, uh, this relationship is important to me with, this, with an unbeliever. Uh, they're doing this. Um, ought I participate in that as well? Ask your believing friends. But I want to offer a, a strange piece of advice, a piece of advice that I think uh, we don't use quite often enough. Why don't you ask your unbelieving friends, ask them why they're doing what they're doing, and explain your stance and why your stance is that way. And be very clear that you love them and care for them very much, but you cannot participate in uh, this particular activity. If they are truly friends, why can't you say that? I think oftentimes our uh, religious uh, life, even as Christians, is pushed off to the side. Uh, we uh, wear a bumper sticker, but we don't actually talk about being Christians, certainly not with our unbelieving friends. Well, that's the second thing, that uh, we actually do need to limit relationships that we have with one believer, uh, unbelievers. But the third is this. I began by saying that uh, a snap or a whistle, actually draws our attention to something. And you can ask me, are you telling me that Christians are commanded by God to scrutinize our relationships with unbelievers? How arrogant is this? And I'm saying, yes. Yes, God is actually commanding us to scrutinize our relationships with unbelievers. And you may argue with me about that, but there is something very positive that you must notice. It may be that these unbelieving relationships are very special indeed, more special than this admonition in Scripture. But I want to ask you, why is it that, the, that your relationships with your church family aren't more special than that? And these are the people that God has for you. If your most precious relationships are actually outside of the church, this passage tells you that this is not God's design for you. Your most precious relationship carries limitations that a relationship with a Christian actually does not. Paul says that because of God's covenantal activity of initiating a relationship with you, all of your relationships with unbelievers must fall short of yoking yourself with them. However, you are more than welcome commanded, encouraged, and then to something to be received as a blessing, to yoke yourself with your believing friends. 
because of God's covenantal activity of initiating a relationship with me, I actually have as a gift of God's wonderful mercy and love for me the most blessed relationships that can be held on earth. And I have those relationships right within my church family. So there's a stop sign, a command. But let me finish with this positive. As a church family, if, if we don't have special friendships with one another, something is wrong. And, and we need to individually critique ourselves. Why is it that my most precious friends aren't in the church body? All of the promises for the preciousness of human relationships are actually uh, 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 made in the context of the church body. You need to hear that. You need to ask that question, but maybe it's you. Maybe you need to invest yourself more in the life of the church body that your friends, most precious friends, would be there in that body. Well, this is a passage that tells us that one of the pictures of the life of the body is that we would be uh, deliberately separated from the world, but that we would also taste the richness of God's mercy in our closeness and intimacy with brothers and sisters in the church. Let's pray together. Our dear Father, you have given us many gifts that we notice, recognize, and thank you for. Is it possible that you've given us gifts as well that are just as precious and wonderful, but rather than acknowledging them, we actually have swept them to the side? We've hidden them. They aren't as significant to us as the other gifts. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us of that and that you would help us, Father, to thank you for, but also richly benefit from the friendships that we have that are friendships within the church body. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.